O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Well, how are we feeling so far? <laughs> a little heavy? Um, I didn't want us to make it through the entire summer in the Psalms and think that all of the Psalms sort of have this, uh, this moment of riding through green meadows on a purple unicorn and that everything is happy um, and wonderful all of the time. And so I offer for you uh, this morning Psalm 88. Um, this is my own personal title, but I like to think of this Psalm as the worst Psalm ever. Um, it really is a tough one, isn't it? Um, this one, far and away, of the 150 psalms that we have in, uh, in the book, this one is maybe the most negative. There really isn't a, a clear-cut point in the whole psalm, even at the end, where it kind of resolves, where you get this definitive statement of, yes, things are going to be okay, and yes, um, I know that God is good. And the reason for that, and, and certainly other psalms besides Psalm 88 have this same feel, is this, this is what we refer to as a lament psalm. And it really is pretty apparent, but it is a cry out to God. Um, it is, in a sense, a complaint. But I don't mean that at all in the sinful sense of complaining. It is being honest and real with God, um, especially in a moment when things are not good. And I think just a way to approach this entire psalm that I would offer you right off the bat is, is that God always uses the worst moments, the worst situations in our lives to show us the best of who he is. Um, that is absolutely true in my life, that the darkest moments, the most difficult moments, that I have through those moments by God's loving hand and care seen more deeply, more clearly how good he really is and how much I really only can and should hold on to him. 
Um, I'll tell you personally that as a kid, as a teenager growing up, um, I, like maybe many of you, uh, was in a place where I struggled, um, sometimes very deeply, with depression, um, with anxiety, with fears of, of all sorts. Um, I would tell you that I, I became a Christian at about age 16. Um, I don't know the exact day, the hour. I probably prayed to receive Christ a thousand times, and, and that in itself was a reflection of my anxiety, and even at that point, a reflection of my own um, self-reliance. Um, but at about age 16, uh, we moved from this area, this church in this city, and we moved out to the Midwest. We moved to Nebraska, and at the time, as a kid, um, that was really upsetting and troubling to me. Um, in a sense, it was kind of devastating, and um, it led to something really good because um, I questioned God. For about two years, I really had some deep questions of who God is and why He does what He does and why do bad things happen, and, and for me, this was a really bad thing, at least at the time. But after that time of questioning, I really look back on that season of life as the moment where I actually came to know God as my personal Lord and Savior, and so I see what He did in that moment. Um, more recently, as, as an adult, as a younger adult, and many of you in this room even walked with Alana and I through this, but in 2010 and 2011, um, we got engaged, and after a few months, we actually broke off the engagement. And I look back even now as that is probably one of the deepest and just darkest moments um, of my life, and, uh, and I struggled deeply with what was going on there. Um, I would tell you that the reason that that even happened was because I even as a Christian, was so wrapped up um, in my own self-reliance, in my own self-righteousness, um, that our relationship fell apart, and it brought me to this dark place. Um, I don't give you those examples to suggest to you that, that my suffering, my brand of suffering, is somehow the worst. Certainly it is not. Um, certainly there are many here among us, or, or friends, family that you know, that are going through incredibly um, far worse things, and we care about all those things. My point is not to say that mine is the worst, but rather to say that in every worst circumstance that we can truly and deeply look to a God who is good, especially when our lives fall apart. Um, and so this morning as we approach this difficult text, I want to offer you four clear applications. Four applications that when we experience, when we approach pain and suffering— the scripture gives us here this morning. Uh, in their simplest form, they are this. You will see them in the scripture insert as well. Number one, trust in God. Number two, cry out honestly. Number three, embrace God's sovereignty and goodness. And number four, know that Jesus endured pain and suffering and even death for you. So number one, in pain and in suffering, trust in the God of salvation. And we take this most clearly from the very first part of the first verse. Listen to what verses 1 and 2 say once again, just the first couple of words. O Lord, God of my salvation. Just camp out right there. Even in his darkest moment, the psalmist turns to the Lord for his deliverance. He uses the Lord's name, his personal name, that is Yahweh. It was the name that God's people, Israel, used to talk to their personal heavenly father. Yahweh, the I am. And then he uses the name God or Elohim, the mighty one. Literally, the good God and the sovereign God. And he calls out to him and he calls him the God who saves me. And this little snippet really is the foundation for the entire psalm. 
See, this is the psalm of a believer. These are the words of a Christian who is dealing with difficult circumstances. He says that he is literally praying day and night. I love that because the reality is is he just keeps asking. He admits that he has not heard an answer yet, but he still keeps on asking, and that is because he expected God to respond. What do you expect of God? Do you expect God to respond when you cry out to him? Or put it another way, do you talk to God when things go wrong? Or do you shut down? Where do you go? We all go somewhere. Where do you go when you experience pain? When you experience suffering, regardless of why it came or what it is or how long, where do you go? Where do you go when health issues come up, when you've lived in daily pain for years? Where do you go when that worst of words, cancer, when that word comes up, where do you go? Where do you go when you feel like your marriage maybe is falling apart? Or for whatever reason, you find that you are just lonely. You feel or you literally are alone. Human relationships have fallen by the wayside. Where do you go? When you have anxiety or anger or depression, suicidal thoughts have been mentioned. Where do you go? When you lose a family member, where do you go? When you've got money problems, where do you go? When you've been abused, Physically, emotionally, sexually, where do you go? When you experience any kind of an injustice because you have chosen in your life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and obey him, and bad things happen because of it, where do you go? See, the psalmist is teaching us something incredibly important here. Even though he is in pain, He still trusts in the God of his salvation. He trusts in him and in him alone. Amen? Number two, the scripture goes on. uh, In pain and suffering, cry out honestly to the God of salvation. Still in the same verse primarily, verse one and verse two. Honestly is the key idea here. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. You should think of the language of this psalm and what the psalmist is doing as screaming at God. He is getting real. He is being honest. He is being transparent. Clearly, there is no holding back that is taking place. This is a prayer. And I want you to know that this is prayer, that you can be honest with God about anything. You can be honest with God about everything. Listen again to what is he actually telling God? Let's look just at verses three, four, and five. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He is literally saying, my life feels like death. You ever been there? 
That's what the word Sheol literally means, is the existence being dead. He even goes so far as to use the language of it. I don't know if you caught that. I feel like I am buried alive, alive in a mass grave. That is what he is describing here. Because he feels like God is absent to him in the same way that somebody who is dead has been disconnected from God. That sense of Sheol. Do you get real with God like this? I'm going to be honest. I did not say those words to God this week. And maybe it's just because I didn't have that kind of a week. But there is something profound here about the level of honesty but you notice still that he admits that God does remember. God has a remembrance, so he understands what he is missing and what he wants. He says that the hand of God exists, that hand of care. So he's declaring they exist, and he wants them, or he wants them back. Listen to the last couple verses of the psalm. This is how it ends. Afflicted and close to death, says verse 15, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So what do we know here about the psalmist's specific circumstances that we can connect to? We see clearly, first of all, that he has suffered for a very long time. He says, from youth, I have suffered. He says that there has been no way of escape when he says that I'm surrounded perpetually by these circumstances. In some form or another, he has literally been abandoned by family and by friends. And he keeps saying, I have looked to God regularly, but at least by the time that this psalm was written, he has not experienced deliverance. He admits, though, that God is sovereign, even in his pain and suffering, because you notice he keeps saying, you did this. You caused this. You were over this. He recognizes that God is in control. So again, where do you take your anger? Where do you take your pain? It's worth asking the question, who can I be honest with? Um, if you have been around me at all for maybe even more than five minutes, um, chances are you have heard um, a particular story from me. And I love this story. I don't apologize for telling it all the time. So if you've heard it before, just enjoy it again. Because I love sharing it because this is a moment that God did something powerful in my life that connects my heart um, to this psalm. During that season of life, 2010, 2011, uh, even the early 2012, when Alana and I were broken uh, apart, our engagement was broken for about a year, um, I went to a Christian counselor. Um, and I want to say that because some of you all still think that going to a Christian counselor is for crazy people. It's not. Christian counseling is awesome. Um, it is for everybody. And if you have struggled with anything or if you think your life is perfect, I would absolutely commend you to a godly Christian counselor, an objective person who can speak the word of God and apply it into your life. Um, and so I went and I experienced uh, a little bit of that. Um, I had a question. I wanted to know uh, what went wrong? Why did our engagement fall apart? And God was even beginning to work in my heart and go, what went wrong in, in my heart? Um, I didn't know. What I found, though, was that I was a Christian, 
but I didn't really know God. I was a Christian, but I had no idea how to relate to God as a father, as a heavenly father. Um, And so the counselor was trying to help me see this. And what I just told you at the time, I could not and I did not understand it. I was not getting it. And I'm sure this counselor, every time I left his office, was like, maybe next week will be the week that he sees but week after week, I kept coming in, and, and finally, I don't know how many weeks in we had been talking, he says, let me, let me try this a different way. Let me put this to you a different way. He said, and he was, he was speaking of his own personal life, he said, I have a son who's, uh, who's eight years old. I have an eight-year-old son, and he struggles, true story, he struggles with anxiety um, and depression, and it leads to all kinds of anger, and even though he's eight years old, the, the anger leads him to violence, and so he will punch walls and doors and just freak out, slam the door, and scream and holler. Um, he said, my son, you know, he's, he's eight years old. He's like 75, 80 pounds. Um, my counselor was easily 300 pounds, 6'5". Big guy, little kid. He said, when that happens, my son falls apart. As his dad, what do you think my response is? I literally stared him in the face like, I don't know. I don't know. He said, I've got a couple choices, right, in that moment. One, I can ignore him. Two, I can go upstairs and just beat the mess out of him and tell him, cut it out. Neither one sounds like a good option. Or number three, I can go up there with him in his pain and wrap my arms around him and hold on to him. And he said, when that happens, you know what my son does? He doesn't calm down. He yells at me. He blames me. He physically hits me. He punches me. He cusses me out. He freaks out on me. He's like, do you think I can handle it? I started to listen. I started to open. He said, where do you think, as his dad, where do you think I want to be? Right there. I can handle it, he said, because I'm his dad. That's what I do. He said, why can't you relate to God a little bit more like an eight-year-old? It shook me. Never thought of it that way. Basically, he was asking, why do you think that you have to keep faking that you have your life together? I said, you're right. I don't have it together. Um, Honestly, I say that, and as I think about you all as my brothers and sisters, for some of you, I pray that your life falls apart. Sounds terrible. It doesn't. What I mean is, all I can tell you is what I've experienced, what the psalmist here has experienced, I believe, that in the worst possible moments, God did amazing and powerful things through that circumstance that changed my life, and I got to see and experience the goodness of God in a way I'd never seen before. And so maybe if you are on the outside looking in and you don't know God as Savior, maybe you are keeping God 500 feet away, you want nothing to do with Him, the idea of a good and loving Father just sounds like garbage to you, I pray that your life falls apart. You know, Pastor Ransom a couple weeks ago opened this series by uh, sharing with us Psalm 23, 
Psalm 23, verse four, I think, it, it couched in the language of this psalm, it just gives it a whole different picture, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's with me. He's the 300 pound, six foot five man that can handle it. He is with me and his arms are around me, even if I don't get it yet. A couple of applications, just practical thoughts here, applications. Um, one, you do not need to accept easy and cheap talk from other believers, from other people, certainly not of God. This psalm and the whole of scripture, scripture gives you permission to get real and wrestle with God. I don't mean to be crass, but let me put it this way. You have permission to cuss at God. You can be that radically honest because I promise he can handle it. He is good enough, he is strong enough, he is Yahweh and Elohim. I would offer you a couple more. One, read. Read these Psalms, particularly the cement, the, the cement, the lament, it feels like cement, the lament Psalms. Read them. There are a lot of them, or even just portions of a Psalm is a lament. Read them because it gives us the language and the vocabulary to be able to pour out our hearts to God, not just to say, God, you're terrible and I don't believe in you, to say, God, this is incredibly difficult, but I still put my trust in you. Not only would I encourage you to read, I would encourage you to write. At some of the most difficult moments in my life, I have literally put pen to paper and I have written out my own lament, my own psalm. It was powerful. God met me there in a specific way. If you are in that place even now, pick up a pen and a paper today and start writing to God. And let that be an Ebenezer in your life that you can go back to years later and go, this is where I was at and look at how God was faithful to me over the days, months, and years. Finally, I, just as a practical application, I would encourage you to reject the same self-righteousness and self-reliance that I had going on in my life because it is that self-righteousness that says, you can't be honest with God. You can't really tell him how you feel and you wouldn't be good enough. Reject that as foolishness. The grace and, grace and the gospel say, God, God can handle it. So we've spoken to your heart a little bit. Third point, I want to talk to your head for just a second. Number three, in pain and suffering, embrace God's sovereignty and goodness. And we get this in particular from verses six through nine of this psalm and also verse 13 and 14. Listen to verses six through nine. You speaking to God, have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Did you catch a theme there? Did you notice anything? Stand out? What is this? This is an accusation, isn't it? This is as point blank, me to you, God, you did this. The pain I'm experiencing is from you. So here's the question, obvious, one of several questions. Is he wrong to accuse God? No. 
He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Because he recognizes, even in his accusation, this is important, he recognizes that God is sovereign and he never accuses God of sin. To put it another way, he recognizes that God is good. This is a messy psalm, but that much still comes through. He recognizes God is sovereign and he recognizes God is good. And in that, he points the finger at God and says, you have done this to me. You know, when you approach the question just uh, uh, who is God? Um, you really only get about four choices, guys, especially as related to this topic, this conversation. First choice, who is God? He's fictitious God. He's not real. Sorry, he's made up. He's not really there. Stop calling because he's not coming. Fictitious God. Number two option, he's mean God. Yeah, he's sovereign. He didn't give a rip about you. He could help. He's in control. He doesn't care. Mean God. Number three, and I would caution you the most with this one because many Christians falsely believe this one. Wimpy God. Wimpy God. He's good. He He saw what you were going through. He cared. His heart bled for you. But he couldn't do anything about it. His arms are too short. In that moment, he was not able to. If he could have, he would have. It sounds good, but in the end, it's trash. Wimpy God. Option number four, he's a good God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He's using even evil, even the worst of circumstances, even your pain and suffering for your good and his glory. He has not left you alone. And ultimately, he has sent his one and only son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, down to this earth to save you and to pull you out of it so that you can spend eternity in a perfect place of no pain and suffering with him for all time. Which God do you want? He is a good God. And this passage begins to lay that out, even in its negativity. Uh, George Barna did a study recently. He asked a really good question uh, of a select group of people. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? What do you think the answer was? If you could ask God any question, just one question, what would you pick? As he surveyed all these people in American audience, what do you think they said? Why? Why is that? This is the exact way that the answer was worded. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Let's up the ante. How could a good, righteous, holy God create a universe in which evil exists? Hmm. Um, I want to offer you a little bit of an answer to that from Scripture, and I will tell you at the outset I am indebted completely to a theologian named John Frame. He wrote a little book among many large books that he's written called Salvation Belongs to the Lord. I would commend that book among others to you to continue to research this topic, but what I'm sharing is is straight from uh, his book, An Application of the Scripture. He says basically this, evil, any type, evil is sin. Sin is breaking God's law. And you ought to know at the outset, sin did not take God by surprise. There is no moment when God was like, an apple? What? Eve did what? 
Adam and Eve, I thought we had talked. I, what? That is not the picture of Scripture, guys. God was not surprised. Well, if he's not surprised, what does that mean? It means God planned it. He had a good purpose in it. See, sin is a part of all things. All things. Sin is a part of all things that God works according to the counsel of his will. Says Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the psalmist, even his pain, recognizes in foreordaining sin, God does not commit sin, nor is he the author of sin. As Jerry preached a few months ago, sin is a part of his decretive will, which is everything that God has determined to bring to pass. We may not see all of his decretive will. We don't know God's master plan, but sin is a part of that, part of his decretive will. What we see is his preceptive will. We perceive it. That is God's desires, his values, his commands for our lives. So that plays itself out at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan, and they give in. Were we there? Do not think you would have done better, right? Were we there in their shoes? We would have done the same thing. We would have committed the same sin. The issue here, we sinned. I sinned, not God. God created the world perfectly. Adam and Eve sinned. Satan disobeyed. And by the way, Jesus was tempted far stronger than Adam and Eve, far stronger than me. And because he is a good and powerful God, he did not sin. He did not give in to temptation. Romans 6.23 tells us very clearly, the payment then for that sin is what? Death. The payment for that sin is death. And with death, with sin, guys, came shame, came fear, came brokenness that we experience in every part of our lives. That's why Romans chapter 5 tells us that through Adam's sin, death came and all died. But through Jesus Christ, who is there referred to as the second Adam, through Jesus Christ's death, he brought life. He brought eternal life. So what Adam failed at, what you and I corporately failed at, Jesus succeeded at. We also know That in Genesis chapter 3, after sin happens, that God curses the ground. God places a curse on the serpent. He places a, 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 a curse on Adam. He places a curse on Eve. The results of that curse is what can be divided natural and, and moral evil. Natural evil. When there's a disaster. When there's a disease. That's natural evil. But even that natural evil ultimately is a function of moral evil. We disobeyed. The world became corrupt. Give you another thought. Good and evil are meaningless expressions unless God exists. You ever think about that? If the universe is fundamentally impersonal and the atheists and the Darwinian evolutionists are right, then the universe has no authority to tell me what to do and what not to do. By recognizing evil, you assume there's an objective standard on which it is based. What is that objective standard? It is God. You cannot recognize evil and at the same time reject the existence of God. 
Without God, there is no good. There is no evil. And I would give you this. God uses evil to bring about good things. Talk about heart. Maybe that's the most important one. God uses evil to bring about good things. You say, prove it. Look at my life. Look at my circumstances. Prove it. Okay. There is no more horrific evil than this, that the Son of God, who committed no sin, was tortured and murdered on a cross. There's nothing more disgusting than that. Listen to what Acts chapter 2, verse 23 has to say about that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God had a plan, man sinned, but what you meant for evil, God used it for good. Salvation. He brought salvation through that moment. If God can bring the best out of that worst, then we, by faith, we can trust God and we can be honest with God and say, Lord, regardless of whatever circumstance it is that I am going through, I trust you and my feet are firmly planted in faith, knowing that you are good in all circumstances. Romans eight twenty eight. God uses all things for the good of those who love him. There is a promise for you, believer, all things work together for your good, for his glory. Two things, God is sovereign and God is good. Fourthly and finally, Jesus. Jesus experienced pain, suffering, and death so that we can experience salvation. I just want to make a Psalms connection for you. Psalm 88 is what we have been reading. I just want to bookend you to Psalm 89. These are the last two Psalms of a section, the third book of the Psalms, and they buddy up in a really cool way because Psalm 88, we're told, is, is written by a guy named Haman the Ezraite. It's the only Psalm he wrote. The next one, Psalm 89, is written by a guy named Ethan the Ezraite. The only time they're ever mentioned in the whole rest of the Bible is 1 Kings chapter 4, 31, and it says that they were both essentially wise men under the rule, reign, and leadership of King Solomon. These guys lived at the same time in the same place, experienced the same positives and negatives. This was actually the height of their culture, and they offer praise and lament to God in the exact same circumstance. Listen to the middle of Psalm 89. See if you can see where we're going. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You know what that word anointed means? Messiah. It's the word Messiah. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Yes, this is talking about earthly kings in the, in the days of Israel. And yes, 
This is talking, looking forward to, pointing us towards the Messiah, King Jesus, and all that he would do for us. The Psalms, the Scripture, Old Testament and New, all point us to Jesus. He was rejected by men. He was rejected by even God the Father because he experienced the wrath of the Father, not because of his own sin, he was sinless, but because of our evil, our sin. The anointed one, the Messiah, the king, also called the servant, who came to suffer for his people. He gave up his crown in heaven to take on a crown of thorns. He literally was plundered as his garments were taken and spread among them. He was scorned, reviled, spit upon, sour wine shoved in his face and mocked. Certainly his enemies thought that they had won. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the Roman soldiers, the Roman politicians, Satan and the demons all thought that they had won because in that moment Jesus did not stand in battle. He came to die. His splendor ceased for a moment. He was stripped naked, beaten and brutalized, given the death sentence that qualified only for the worst of criminals. He was covered with our shame. And he brought life. Through his death, he brought life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where, O death, is your victory? It's gone. Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. Where, pain and suffering, is your victory? It's gone. Because the God of the universe sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Brother and sister, you may be suffering now. Terrible things that I've never experienced. But Jesus is the king. He is not rotting in a grave. They keep digging up something out in Israel. You know what they haven't found yet? His body. He's not there. He's alive. Amen? He's the king. He came to save us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a good God in all circumstances and in all seasons. And Father, we do not take lightly your scripture, nor do we avoid the parts of scripture that seem difficult. Lord, we recognize that your word is true, it is flawless, it is powerful, and God, so we therefore direct all of our trust, our faith, our allegiance, and even our complaints to you. Father, I thank you for that image, and I just pray that image over these folks even today, Lord, that you are a good and loving Father, and and Lord, regardless of the reasons, when we fall apart, when we get angry, when we punch through the walls, when we hurt, God, that you are there, you are ready. Father, I pray for those that do not know you in that way, whether they would say, yes, I'm a believer, I just don't know I'm that way. Or Lord, maybe they've never experienced you, salvation, being forgiven of sins. Father, I pray for all of us that we might draw near to you. You're a good God. You are in total control. Father, at no point were you wimpy God. Even in the worst moment, Lord, you consciously, intentionally, before the foundations of the world, sent your son Jesus to die on a cross to save us from our sins because you knew we could not save ourselves. You were not surprised by Adam and Eve's sin. Father, you're not surprised by my sin either. You made a way to restore relationship, to give us eternity with you. And God, keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes on eternity. Father, I pray for everyone here who is genuinely experiencing pain, 
and suffering. Father, we think of family and friends, acquaintances, coworkers who are experiencing pain and suffering. We pray that your word, your spirit, your truth, your salvation might be a comfort to them. Give us the voice, give us the hands and the feet of Jesus to be able to communicate that same love to all those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.